message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1351.ps13704, certificate number 40632. The what? Oh, right, sorry. Tuvan Throat Singers. <laughs> So we should explain, first of all, to our future listeners that for the first time, we have brought in some outside observers to monitor our... Uh, our ambitious project. That's right. Typically, we've been recording this show in a bunker for future uh, inhabitants of Earth, whomever they may be. Or but, whatever. Or whatever. They, but may, they may not prefer that pronoun. We decided that one of the ways that we wanted to ensure that this survived the coming global cataclysm was that we start allowing other current residents of Earth to know of our project. So this is a live performance. What a rare privilege for... So all the future uh, listeners who have been listening in puzzlement to our jokes and, you know, reacting with awkward silence. Now we have a live audience to react with an awkward silence. Exactly. It's funny, if they're insectoid, they can make their own cricket chirps when, <laughs> when we make a joke on the show. Yeah, your typical sketch fest listener is already a cockroach of some kind <laughs> or another. What? That's good. Get the, uh, get the crowd on your side, That's John. That's my brand. So, Tuvan throat singing sounds uh, very similar to, like, uh, Appalachian music, really, when you think about it, when yeah. I heard it there. Is that what you hear? I mean, the kind of rhythmic uh, sort of violining, the fiddle playing and the, hey, man, how are you here? It's very guttural. Yeah. I mean, you hear, oh, my whole life, it I've It sounds like it. Ralph Stanley. Is that the guy's name? That, oh, death. You know, that Appalachian guy? <laughs> yeah, well, it does not that bad. Until another year. I don't speak Tuvan, so I don't know what he's saying, but my whole life, right, we've talked about Tuvan throat singing as a, well, I mean, as a musician, it's always something that you say to somebody who Wow, is, you travel in lofty circles, John, where you're... Well, no, it's always meant as an insult, like nice Tuvan <laughs> throat singing, Danzig. 
is, is Glenn Danzig an example of somebody whose style reminds you of Tuvan Thrust? The thing is, we've never heard Tuvan Thrust singing, so we just throw it out at people. You just say it about anybody. Yeah, just like, oh. Adele, Tiny Tim. Yeah, nice Tuvan Thrust singing. But now, having heard it, it's actually pretty dulcet. I was kind of like, hey, it's got a good beat and you can dance to it. Well, they do that guttural thing, but what's remarkable about it to me is, and what I think is most interesting about the Tuvan Thrust singers is they have the ability to sing multiple or sound multiple tones at once. To make a chord in their throat. A chord in their vocal cord, I guess. Chord with an H in their chord without an H. Is that? It's a it, pun when you do it out loud, for yeah. sure. When you, when you explain the spelling difference, that's what makes it really funny. Great radio. Uh, is it a thing like, uh, like so many of those kinds of talents where you have to kind of practice a little bit of like a temporary self-lobotomy where one half of your brain is thinking about the mechanics of a thing while the other half is whatever doing the, I mean, you're not a tube and throat singer. I don't know why I'm asking you about like the, uh, what it feels like to do, but. Well, when I'm out there on the, <laughs> on the steps of Tuva, John, just, just me and my yaks. I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine how, it, how you would do it and also do whatever right. else you're doing. I mean, that's, your what, violin. that's what's fascinating about it to me is it's essentially a superpower. Right? Like, we're probably speaking to residents of the future who have mutant powers, right? They're probably shape changers and they have flight or invisibility. You are really, really stroking this crowd right now. We're <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> me, me, me. 1980s X Men <laughs> comics. Please talk more about that. Um, and I've always been interested by the idea that human beings in our era could have these unsuspected. Superpower, you know, like you hear about a super taster who works at a food kitchen and has sensory abilities that none of us do. Or um, I, when I lived, I lived in Salt Lake City for a long time, and that was Murray, Utah, where I lived, was most famously there, the hometown of a guy named Kim Peek, whom uh, Dustin Hoffman based his character in Rain Man off of. Oh. He was a local savant who uh, did not have a, a corpus callosum in his brain, which connects the two hemispheres of your brain. And I guess when you're born without that, the brain makes all kinds of novel and complicated new connections with the result that he could look at a book and his left eye would read the left page and his right eye could read the right page like at different you know, patterns and intervals. I've often thought that when, uh, as we start to use sort of heads-up displays or augmented reality, that if we use it only on one eye and leave the other eye kind of open to the world or use it as a heads-up where it's kind of in one portion of your vision and, and another portion is is free, right. uh, that it will create that kind of a, a severing of the corpus callosum, but voluntary, or... or um, you could choose so to give yourself a, you would a sit, split personality. Yeah, sit and look at, your, look at videos here while you're driving here, and pretty soon your brain would make the distinction. That would be perfect. I don't know what for, I guess. <laughs> to be able to watch videos and drive. You can binge watch more TV if you have a long commute, I guess. They say, and I think I read this just recently, that the, the pivotal moment in a young child's life where they lose faith is not when they realize that their parents are fallible. Or Santa Claus. Or that Santa Claus doesn't exist. But that, sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, but that when they realize that magic actually isn't real because kids live in this magical world, a world where magic is all around them and the potential of magic, and when they realize that they can't do magic is this moment of like tremendous disillusionment. I remember at being pretty young and learning that one of my friends had uh, what's called perfect pitch, absolute pitch, which is a very rare vocal Not trick. relative perfect pitch, but actual perfect actual, pitch. Actual, like one in 10,000 wow. Americans is, uh, has this ability, and it appears to be culturally 
dependent. Did you know that? Right, because Chinese is a tonal language. Right. And more people have a perfect pitch there. Yeah, in, in some studies, like, they'll look at Asians who can play an instrument, and if they speak a tonal language, like a Chinese or a Southeast Asian language, you know, one in three has absolute pitch. And it appears to be, you know, from a very young age, hearing these tones and assigning a name or a category to them. So that you, because for people who have this ability, if you're a Mariah Carey or whatever, you're not just kind of thinking, ah, eh, that's a little higher than a D, I'm going to say that's an E flat. Like you, you actually are hearing a, a tone or a, they call it chroma, some quality of the note that a B flat has differently than a C. Is it a synesthesia type of thing where you get a color? Yeah, it's, it's a little, yeah, chroma means color. And I think that's literally how it works. And it works with other senses too. I was looking at this study where they went to Namibia and they the Himba tribe of Namibia is one of many languages that has the same word for green or and blue. Yeah. Which is weird. Like my mom does that. <laughs> I I had a I had a Chrysler well, I had a Chrysler LHS that was blue and she said that it was green. <laughs> we are the we're from the same people. So the Himba tribe and John's mom. Yeah. It's not uncommon for, for cultures to develop the blue-green distinction um, late, which is weird to me because if there's any two colors you need in nature, you'd think it would be the blue of the sky versus... Anyway, you show a Himba person uh, nine blue cubes and one, or nine green cubes and one blue one, and you say, which of these is different than the others? And they have a very hard time with it. Mm. Whereas uh, they have multiple shades named for shades of green. So if you show them nine shades of green and one slightly yellower one, they'll be like that one right there. So the act of assigning a name to a thing appears to just change your ability to, to distinguish it with your sensory apparatus, which is nuts. I should say to the giant starfish who are listening to this program 3,000 years from now. And may have 000, no sensory apparatus. Yeah, that a tonal language is a language where the syllabic and consonant sounds of a word remain constant, but the pitch of the word changes, and the word has different meanings based on its pitch, not on its pronunciation. Like the Chinese word ma, whether it's flat ma, or ma rising, or ma descending, or even ma, like something with a sine wave to it. Like that's four different words. Four different words. And, and they don't even, like I've had the experience of having somebody try to make a pun based on this to a Chinese person, and they don't even get it, because to them the words don't sound that much the same. They're like, what? Oh yeah, I guess, but the tones are all different. You know, they're, they're not into this idea at all. Puns really do not communicate across language or across time. Typically, the best way to bring cultures together would be a pun, but in this case, somehow. A pun based fails. on them. That's yeah. why we're constantly using puns in this podcast for our far distant ancestors. Before we go further, where in the hell is Tuva? Tuva is located in Central Asia. Uh, like Turkmenistan? It's, it's the southernmost part of Siberia. So it's where, you know, Russia's... Hanging belly hits Mongolia, so I guess. does it border Mongolia? It does. And the Tuvan people actually live within the Russian Republic of Tuva as well as uh, in nearby, you know, in, in Mongolia. But there is a Tuvan Republic. Yes, and it was once independent. Uh, From 1921 to 1945, it was called Tanatuva. And it, this happened because... It, you know, uh, Tuva had off, it was as an ethnicity, had been ping-ponging back and forth between the Chinese and the Russians. And they briefly had uh, Russia grant them independence. And then they were, in 1945, they were absorbed by the Soviet Union. Nobody ever recognized this country except for uh, the Soviet Union and Mongolia. But it was an independent country of Tanatuva. And they had triangular postage stamps, which was of great interest 
to many people. The, uh, They're like, how are we going to stand out? <laughs> <laughs> what shapes of postage stamp are taken? When are we going to get recognized by that third country? Let's do, <laughs> let's do triangular postage. It did not work. They should have picked a more, a more recherche style of postage. But are the, So the Tuvans have a separate language and culture from Mongolians or... Western Chinese or they're a the, Turkic people. Turkic. Like they're you know the, the Russians would consider them Tatars. They you know they kind of look like maybe Genghis Khan, how you would imagine Genghis Khan. Yeah. And to this day they um, they use a, hawks to hunt. I would imagine. I that, mean I don't, I hate to like hate uh, to stereotype make, make cultural assumptions about the Tuvans, but I'm imagining they use. That's hawks a pretty to facile. It's <laughs> pretty facile Tuvan joke, John. <laughs> When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout they uh you know the economy is based on cattle herding and fur trapping to this day and earlier in, this, in the 20th century, to such a degree that their economy, their currency was even pegged to squirrel pelts. So if there was a squirrel shortage, <laughs> there would be inflation in Tanatuva. Until when? This is, I mean, today, to this day. Until the 80s? Like, yeah. Or until now? Like, fur trapping is still very central to their, to their economy. The physicist Richard Feynman, the American nuclear physicist Richard Feynman. Of, well of Manhattan Project fame. Safe cracker extraordinaire. That's right. Loved breaking into safes in Los Alamos and pissing people off. He also um, led the investigation into the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster That's in That's right, I remember. He was fascinated with Tana Tuva and towards the end of his life wanted to visit Tuva. And it was very hard now that it was a Soviet, part of the Soviet Union. And his after trying for years to get into Tuva, um, remembering the postage stamps of his childhood, he, oh. he finally received permission from the Soviet government the day after he died of cancer and never made it to Tuva. But, the, you know, but his loss is our gain. It's much easier to get to Tuva now. Should, uh, well, let, should any, even if Dr. Feynman will not make it. Just as, a, just as a, a further point of question, what value do squirrel pelts have to anyone? <laughs> I wonder if it's purely currency, you know? Like, <laughs> it's like, like just choosing that it's going to be seashells or whatever. It's like beads? There's a lot of these around, so uh, we'll many, say 24 of these to one of those. How many squirrel pelts would you need to stitch together to make even a small cloak? Maybe it's not a cloak. Maybe it's like a water, uh, a water skin. Three, three squirrel skins to the water skin. Ten to the scarf. <laughs> 50, 50 to the Tuvan overcoat. <laughs> Okay, this seems like another episode of the Omnibus, so uh, let's save the Tuvan squirrel economy for another time. Uh, so what, what 
uh, is the significance of throat singing to the culture? Is it just their music, or does it have a does it serve a religious function or a separate cultural function? It's mostly their folk music. Like that's that's how they enjoy singing. Like that to, uh, to them, that's the mode of that's that's the standard kind of singing. And it's not really that rare. Many cultures, not just Tuvans, have used this idea of overtone singing, where you introduce a second note as you sing at the same time. In uh, in Sicily, you have the uh, the style of singing called cantu di tenori, which is like it's kind of like barbershop. It's four men standing in a circle, but they kind of do round singing where their voices rise and fall with multiple notes, kind of fading in and out. It never really begins and ends. And they do the same kind of overtone singing. So um, it's four guys, but it sounds like eight guys. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or if they can do three notes, it, maybe it's 12 or 16. Huh. Um, the Inuit women do it. It's called katajak up there when their uh, husbands are out hunting. They sit around at home and, uh, you know, as they do their, their blubber-related tasks, they are... Uh, they're they're singing overtone notes. Uh -huh. um, the uh, I'm going to say this wrong. The Shosha the Shosa people of South Africa. You know, it starts with X H. Right. You know what I'm talking I about. Think Shosa is a good good shot at it. It's probably pretty close, right? They have a call and response uh, form of overtone singing called umunkokolo, where the the women will sing back and forth to each other. Um, so it's almost it's it's kind of surprising in our culture that we don't really have anything like it. Because it's not, you know, it is a superpower, but it's not one that only a small number of people can do. It's something that can be learned. And you know that, uh, that may be true for, you made the distinction between absolute pitch and relative, pitch. absolute, relative pitch. Relative pitch. You know, because people can learn to do something like perfect pitch. There was, a, uh, there was some work done by a guy named Cheryl Heaton in the 90s at the University of North Florida, where I get all my research from. Sure. Uh, where he, he noticed watching basketball games that when uh, somebody missed the rim entirely and the crowd said, air ball. They were all in key? They were all, not just the interval, but game by game across the country, everybody started on F and then dropped to D. F is the pitch of air ball. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no reason why you should, you should choose that. And, he, and to this day, nobody really knows why this happens. Well, think about, oh, 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 that... Whole big crowd in India all was singing it at the same time. And do you think that's the same kind of thing? No, they heard it from They a heard UFO. it from a flying saucer, which yeah. is not true at most college basketball games. I've never been to a college basketball game. It may be as far, I mean, I don't know. Is University of North Florida, one of the Southern Ivies. So even, <laughs> the, North, the North Southern Ivies. <laughs> uh, so, so even though this is something that maybe one in 10,000 of us can do, um, there are there are apparently ways in which it can be learned or approximated, or you know we all have these flashes of brilliance. The bass player in the Long Winters, my award-winning uh, band, which has <laughs> never won an award of any kind. You're speaking to a future audience where oh. the Long Winters are appreciated. And I'm sorry, that's right. Uh, my my band, the Wild Stallions. <laughs> um, the our bass player Eric Corson has relative pitch, and and if you play him a note, he can. He's pretty good, 89%. He can tell you what the note is. And so he's not hearing chroma the way somebody who has been able to do this in childhood can, but he can kind of zero in He knows, in on he's it. like, that's oh, a D or whatever. He can just kind of hear how it goes. Uh, you know, I, as I was reading about this guy's insane airball research, I tried it at my house. I, I started singing airball to myself, and then, I went to, and then I went to the piano. And I was not doing an F and a D. 
And I don't know if that's because I'm dumber than every single person at a University of North Florida. No, it's it's cultural. It's cultural. How many basketball games have you said? Have you mocked the other team? You, because that's what it is, right? Shouting airball is a is totally like a form of the ultimate so derision. You think I wasn't feeling it? I didn't have the the emotional. Yeah. What's my motivation here? Like, why why am I so mad that that was an airball? Feel air ball the hate. Feel the hate coursing through you. I went to Gonzaga University, and and the the sort of super fans would learn all about the opposing team's family <laughs> and their they would do oppo and research their, and their grades and the stuff about their mom and then when they were when the other team was like on a drive or whatever they'd say like hey too bad your sister married that guy and you know, and I was just there like, so you see a basketball game and it, you know, it was very effective. People would get furious. They'd come, you know, they'd come into the stands and it was great. You weren't putting in the time. It was the 1980s when that type of thing wasn't, you know, didn't, uh, wasn't met with the kind of censure that that would be, that that would be met with today. I was wondering if you had to be in a crowd, you know, if there's something like the wisdom of crowds where even if everybody kind of starts on different tones, the crowd gradually approaches the one true way to sing airball. I wish that were true of the way the kids in my daughter's elementary school sing happy birthday. <laughs> that you, you're saying they'll just stick with it and they'll it never resolves. In. Each kid picks their own path through the forest. It's a lot like life in that way, you know? <laughs> and the adults too. They're not, they don't help, you know, they're just... <laughs> It's true that the world is full of people starting happy birthday too high, right? I always start at high because I'm always, because you're dealing with six-year-olds. Like, that's their range. They can sing that high. And as a professional singer, I can sing that high. <laughs> and Way I, to rub it in. I do it. It's kind of like shouting airball to the other dads. <laughs> it's like, come on along, fellas. As a professional singer, do you feel like you could do over the throat singing of Tuva? Overtone singing. <laughs> you can't just sound like a garbage disposal and say, yeah, it's, it's pretty close. <laughs> Chewbacca in a garbage disposal? <laughs> I think that if I sat and worked at it, yeah, right, you'd start to feel it. I mean, when I hear them, I had singing lessons one time where, the, where my singing instructor would say things to me like, sing from your knees. And it sounds like hocus pocus hippie gibberish. But when you're really singing and really feeling it in your body, you can move, your, move the locus of your voice around your body and you do feel it. You feel yourself singing from your knees. She would say like, move it to your ears, sing from your ears. And you, you could move your voice around and it felt like it was coming from- And it's not actually happening, but if, whatever you're doing with the, the tone, it feels like that's how it's resonating. Or... It becomes a thing. And so when I, in the, in the instances where I've produced other vocalists in the studio, I'll say things like, I really feel like you need to be singing this like a lot less from your sternum and a lot more from the confidence that you have embedded in your ribs and they're like right yeah but it works you know it really works you, you motivate people to it works in that it makes you look cooler uh hard to make me look cooler <laughs> but no it, it uh i guess it focuses your mind on on the fact that singing is really an entire body process and we think of it as a thing that's here you run air through here but really you can get your entire body involved and when you're really singing, like in that 
style or when you're singing opera or something really powerful, you, your whole body should be engaged. The thing about, you know, the name throat singing really made me skeptical at first because isn't all singing throat singing? You know, it's not like, is there an abundance of other Central Asian tribes singing out of other orifices of their body? <laughs> I love the, I love the dude burn. I love the rectum singers. Burn of, on tuba. The, the colon crooners of Kazakhstan. <laughs> but it's what you're saying that you know it, it it's coming from very deep in the throat. And I was surprised by the fact that you could produce multiple tones. But here's here's what the deal is: all musical sound has more than one tone to it. Basically, all music has overtones in it, unless you have a machine that can just produce a sine wave. You know, even a, even a pitch, a tuning fork, you know, that's as close as you can come to one pure. Um, and what gives instruments their different uh, timbres, I guess, is that, you know, that's what makes a French horn sound different than a glockenspiel. And even, I think, what makes vowels sound different Well, one's speech. a horn. <laughs> I don't want to get too technical. But. <laughs> now walk me through this, John. Which one is a horn? Uh, it's just, you know, they're playing the same note, but what's happening is you're getting different overtones coming in and out. And... I guess the idea is, you know, let's say you pluck a string, but it doesn't have to be a string. It could be a reed resonating or a, your vocal cords resonating. Um, you're getting the fundamental. Uh, you know, it's producing, the wave that gets produced is all kinds of frequencies superimposed over each other. And some of them are not stable because they're not resonant. You know, the ends of the thing are fixed. So any wave that doesn't end at the end is not going to kind of keep going. Yeah, that one's done. But, you know, think about it. You've got one that's the full length of the, of the string. But then you've got one that maybe goes up and down and back up, you know, and that's like the second harmonic. And then you've got a third harmonic that does that three times. And that's in everything. When we sing, we have those kind of overtones in our voices. We just don't notice. So it turns out that the art of Tuvan throat singing is mostly subtractive. You're oh. filtering out the sounds you don't want and kind of finding ways to emphasize and highlight specific ones that give you the effect you want. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So are the different tones coming from different places in your throat or are you vibrating your vocal cords in such a way that they are producing Chords. That's right. And it's not that you have a G string and a, you know, you don't, an E string. You don't have all that going on in there. You know, the same vibration is happening on the same fiber or tissue or whatever it is. It's just that any kind of resonant sound has overtones, it turns out. Huh. And so the art of it is trying to highlight the ones you want. And what they usually tell you to do, the exercise, apparently, what you want to do is you want to put your tongue kind of close to the roof of your mouth like you're saying an R or an L. Or... Like, so your tongue is kind of floating there. Uh, 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 and you want to do a, kind of a low tone. Uh, 
from your chest. Very nice. And you, do, do, come along with us if you're gonna <laughs> on this adventure. And while you're doing that, you want to kind of move between an ooh and an e. Do it slowly. Make the transition between the ooh and the e very slow. And somewhere between the ooh and the e, it's hard. So it's hard to hear in your own voice. But sometimes between the ooh and the e, you can kind of hear an overtone. Do, do, do you kind of hear it? Do you guys kind of hear something that sounds like 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 it's like a drone of a bagpipe or a didgeridoo or something? Like two things are happening there. And it's kind of like. It's very, it's very satisfying. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's the kind of thing I do in the shower, frankly. And apparently, the shower and the car are the best places to practice because you know we're so used to the sound of our own, our own overtones that we don't notice when they appear, and you know we, it's hard to cultivate them. What you want is to have some masking sound block out a lot of the other tones, so you can kind of focus on the new thing. And there are things you can do to make it better. For example, like once you've kind of found the position between ooh and e that does that, that where you you, you felt that, that that buzz that, because um, you want to get to the point where it's almost like a, the '50s sci-fi sound of a, a a flying saucer, where it's like a whistling on top of a humming, like you know, it'll kind of sound like that. So one thing to try is to put the tongue a little further out, like you're talking like this, and then try it again. But this time you're gonna have to go to e to ooh with kind of the back of your tongue only. So it's like. It's almost sad the future can't see us do it, just because right. of how great we look, right? Like, like how photogenic it is to I do that knew, thing. I knew a guy who was a professional flautist who played flute with Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> he was an old guy. And he would, while playing the flute, also scat. What? He would scat over the top of the flute, and it would be both making flute music, and also he would be like, and he had a whole, he could talk, he could do a whole like jazz rap. Over the so top he combined jazz flute and scatting, the two kinds of music that no one wants to hear. Mm -hmm. And it's more efficient not to hear them at once. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not like he made that record with Jefferson Airplane and catapulted it to, so he's living on Lake Como somewhere. He was hanging out with me in a with warehouse. A <laughs> <laughs> he didn't quite make the scat flute no, jet set. No. All the world famous uh, scat flautists. Well, I'm always amazed when, um, you know, another kind of superpower like that is the circular breathing thing. Well, I was going to ask, is that a thing that uh, that they need in order to be able to Tuvan throat sing? I don't, so I've watched videos of Tuvan throat singers and they don't appear to be doing some kind of long, do you guys know how circular breathing works? It's where, what made Frank Sinatra famous. Well, Fra Frank, well, no, in fact, if Frank Sinatra... And also all the people he had whacked. That was later. <laughs> Frank Sinatra... was the circular breathing. As a young crooner in the 40s, when he was just starting out, he had practiced circular breathing such that he never audibly takes a breath in his recordings. And, and so my understanding of this is, at least if you're playing the trumpet or something, you're um, breathing in with your nose while you're still pushing air out. Like, there's no way to breathe in with your mouth and in with your nose and out with your mouth at the same time. Like, we're just not, we have one But you can put track. air in there. You and can put air in and continue to push it out and so while you're sucking in. Like, glass blowers have to do it, I think. Because you can't just stop in the middle of blow blowing a, 
a glass and be like, because you'll coat your lungs with molten lava. Right. But I think he had some ability to be like, and keep the air flowing. Um, and he, that's why he, he was so popular with teenage girls. <laughs> they're, they're, always, they're always looking for a, yeah. a circular breather. I guess one thing, that, one thing that accentuates it apparently is making sure you're not losing air through your nose. You want that full power. So being, being louder helps. So you want to practice putting more uh, behind it. But you also want to make sure none of it's going out through your nose. I don't know if you've ever noticed, like if you're humming, mm, the air's all coming out through your nose. Mm, pinch your nose while you hum. Mm, you know, it stops immediately. You Whoa. Can, isn't that weird? I never did that before. Try it. <laughs> How did they all decide to do it at the same time? It's like air ball. <laughs> that was nuts. So you want to make sure you're not leaking out your nose. You know, you're pushing everything out through the mouth. And um, there's fine adjustments you make. Like you're, you're, lift, you're trying to lift the tongue, the back of your tongue off the the floor of your mouth a little bit. You know, you can actually see the little tendons in the neck go up. There's a, very, there's a fine amount of control you do. But if you get really good at this kind of polyphonic singing, there's a remarkable thing that happens where you can control the fundamental note you're singing and keep the overtone the same. Or you can make the overtone do the melody while the fundamental note just keeps going at the same. Um, you can keep one note static and move another note? Yeah, because there's multiple harmonics. You can switch between the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and they're always available to you as a, as a function of the frequency you're singing in the fundamental. I understand the words you're using. I know, right? <laughs> but I do not understand how you would physiologically accomplish that. Think about the muscle control required. I was watching these videos by a woman named uh, German... She's a, an elfin polyphonic singer named Anna Maria Heffala and she shows off her, her overtone singing ability. Anna Maria Heffala is an elfin throat singer. Yes, she's, a, she's a, an adorable German woman with amazing tongue control, John. I, I want you to meet this woman. I hope she follows me on Twitter. <laughs> and the effect you get is uh, because there'll be this high-pitched whistling above the fundamental, and it sounds like somebody went into an abbey where they were doing Gregorian chanting and brought a theremin, you know? It's like Brian Wilson shows up at your abbey and is like, can we, can we play the clip of, uh, of this uh, ger amazing German that she's elfin and German makes a lot of sense to me. Do you feel she might be some kind of sprite? Some, it feels very Some dryad York. from the Black Forest? What I want to suggest to someone in this room is that if you go on a Tinder date, that that be playing in your car. <laughs> <laughs> Just pick up your Tinder date and say, where should we go? And never make a reference to it. They'll wonder how many people did not make it to the end of the date, right? Like, how many bodies are in the trunk of this car? Exactly? Is, that, is that a thing that she does as a novelty, or is that her profession? Or does that, is that just something she invented, or is that, does that represent something cultural from some portion of Germany? I don't think there's any strain of German folksing. I think she found out she could do this parlor trick because she's one of these super-powered people who walks among us, and 
people are fascinated by her ability to do it because she's really cultivated the gift. But I think in Tuva, it's kind of culturally wide. Like that's their folk music, you know? It's like ska to a certain kind of annoying white kid, you know? Like that's, that's, that's just what, they're, what there is. That's their default music. Ugh. You had to mention ska. <laughs> I know you haven't been feeling great today, John. <laughs> I wonder if there's some aspect to it that, uh, because uh, it sounds to me like Tuva is on the steps, probably a great treeless plain. That's exactly right. And I wonder if it travels great distances, and if as a Tuvan throat singer you can communicate... To your with, yaks? With someone, yeah, to, to your hawk or your yaks or your, your uh, yak-herding hawk. And, you know, guide them from afar with this kind of uh, multi-level, long-distance it's, it's like how Batman has the button on his belt that makes the bats come with his sonar, but they're just making yaks come? That's not the analogy I would have chosen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a cool rock one that has no comic books in it? Uh, it you know, the, the steps of Tuva, I think, are also kind of a wide-open space where the wind whistles through the... Well, nothing. There's no trees. The wind whistles, the wind whistles the, through the scrub. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe that, that kind of bare, you know, naked honesty of that guttural music really uh, appeals in that kind of well, stripped-down landscape. You were saying doing it in the car and doing it in the shower, uh, the constant droning sound stripped away the uh, distracting tones and allowed you to focus on the harmonic tones. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's true of the wind in Tuva, that it, the constant... <sighs> is precisely what you need to focus your attention on your throat singing. If we could only raise babies with some kind of constant Tuvan wind sound in their head, we could raise a nation of throat singers here. And our future listeners are nodding in agreement as they throat sing their approval. <laughs> we just remade their society. No charge, guys. You've been listening to... Oh, right, sorry. I feel like I'm about to throw up. We'll leave this in. <laughs> and that concludes Tuvan Throat Singers. Entry number 1351.PS13704. Certificate number 40632 in the omnibus. You don't... I would also be happy that the Tuvan portion of the program is over. I understand. Um, but I wasn't kidding. All day long, I have felt like I was going to throw up at any moment. And I've tried to throw up so many times today. And I don't know if you've ever tried to throw up and failed, but it feels so bad. I feel like such a loser. You're like, I'm sorry, this doesn't, this doesn't usually happen to me. Yeah. 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 We'll try again in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time, I swear. Yeah. Yeah, that, all those commercials that you see late at night where a guy is driving in a car and then he's in a hot tub and his wife looks at him really appreciatively, it's because he learned to throw up. In not, the hot tub. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he no longer is like, oh.